Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Um, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as jealous, as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will 
and see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Thank you very much, Kat. Um, uh, we're going to be looking at that together for a few minutes. Do, do keep it open. If it helps you to follow along, um, just questionsreport.org slash transcript. You can see some notes of what I'm saying, if that helps you. Let's pray together as we look at God's word. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is unfailingly kind to those who don't want to listen to him. We thank you that's the pattern you give the church. And we pray you would help us live out this calling to be uh, strangers in the world, but who treat those who hate us with kindness and generosity. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, recently we had our weekend away uh, with our partner churches here in Liverpool, and it was great fun. And uh, hopefully you can come next year if you weren't able to make it. Let me tell you the story about one of the people who is now a leader at one of those churches, so we're still friends, uh, but when he was a student here at Liverpool Uni. He was one of the leaders of the Christian group in his university, and he invited a speaker to talk about something. And that speaker made a comment uh, about the, some issue to do with sexuality. Now, that was not what they had been invited to speak on. They just decided, oh, great, I've got a platform for students. I'll rant on about something totally irrelevant. And he went on about that, and then he got in his car and went home somewhere far away from Liverpool. Well, our poor old friend got an email the next day from the Students' Union, which is like a students' group in the university, saying, please, can you tell us what has happened at your meeting because LGBT people in the union feel unsafe because of what this person said. He, what a horrible feeling to receive that email. But he emailed back and he used the email to explain the truth of what Christians believe about Jesus. He said, I wasn't trying to cause fuss about this. Here's what we actually believe and think is important. Well, then he got called in to see the society's officer and told off for causing trouble in the student union. Remember, this was not actually something he'd actually done at all or organised. But he said, well to me afterwards, well, I just used the opportunity to explain the gospel, what we believe, to the society's officer. I thought, got, got his ears. So I'll do that while I'm here. But that wasn't sufficient. Next, he was called in to see the student union vice president, who told him off for making this space unsafe for LGBT students. He said, well, all I did was gently apologise and explain about the grace of Jesus to the vice president. Next was the student newspaper, who decided to run an article called See You Exposed, which to me sounds like the most boring article ever. <laughs> it's like, oh, they all wear the same hoodie as each other, and 
who need to socialise with Christians. Um, anyway, and he said this reporter came from the student newspaper, uh, was glaring at him, talking about him. Then it was all like put out this terrible stuff from about the uni, but he was like, well, at least I got to explain what we really believe to the journalist. Why am I telling you that story? Well, Jesus said these words, let your light shine before men so that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus gives us this pattern where he says, be a Christian in front of people and that will in the end lead people to trust God. But we read that and assume, especially if you're from a largely Christian country, that what that means is people will see our good deeds, will think, oh, isn't that lovely? I would love to be like that. I would like to be a Christian. That's what we think that verse means. People see the light shining, then they think, oh, yes, I'd love some of that light too. In fact, the model of Jesus and of Paul and suggested to all Christians in the New Testament is that you do the right thing, people hate you anyway, and it's that that brings the opportunity for you to speak graciously about Jesus. That is the moment where you can actually say something impactful. Think about it. It happened to Jesus. What did Jesus do except serve and care and love people and yet he was crucified. But it is in the moment of being crucified he does his work of saving people. Or think about what's happened to Paul in this passage. It's a, he is just trying to do the right thing and ends up being the centre of this controversy. But that's his moment he can speak. Listen, the Bible, the New Testament is clear. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to end up in some hairy situations not because, I mean, you can end up in hairy situations because you're being an idiot. That's a possibility. Uh, but not because of that he's talking about here. Hairy situations because you're doing the right thing. And that's criticised. Or even, like my friend, dropped into a situation by the careless actions of other Christians. I mean, he could have just said, couldn't he, this has nothing to do with me. I didn't even ask him to speak about that. But those are the moments you will get to speak to a wider group of people. So if people dislike you, that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it wrong. That's not necessarily a failure. If people dislike you for doing what's right, that's opening up an opportunity. How you behave in that moment is very important. Can I just say again, many of us have this wrong. We think the moment you're in trouble is the moment to shut up. And Acts teach us the opposite. That's the moment when you've got people's attention. We have this uh, recorded here, this story about the end of Paul's ministry, and then talked about in the New Testament, because this is the pattern for all Christians at all times. He's passed the baton on to the church. They need to do the ministry. And now he's giving the model for all Christians, telling us in this story what the New Testament says all Christians will experience. And so that's what we're going to see today. Here's the first thing we see. Unfair criticism. You may not have been here last week, so you may not know what's going on here. Paul has got, spent years going round the world, sharing the joyful news that you don't have to obey any law, any moral law, 
any religious law. You don't have to obey anything like that to be right with God. You just turn to Jesus. You don't, before that or after that, have to follow the Jewish law to be a proper Christian. He's been going around the world telling people that. But he's got back to Jerusalem, which is sort of like Judaism central. And the church there, the very first church, they're made up of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters. So they're Jewish as well as being Christian. They're saying, listen, Paul, what you're doing is causing us quite a bit of trouble here. People are saying you don't respect our traditions. So even though you don't have to obey the law anymore, could you publicly obey the law a bit to take the heat off us? And Paul, even though he doesn't have to do it, says, okay. He actually pays some money, gets his head shaved to show that he's obeying this particularly sort of keen version of Judaism that they were a part of. And he's almost completed that task in verse 27 when it says the seven days were nearly over. That was the seven days of like fasting and commitment he had to do. He's almost completed that when some people see him and it says they stirred up the crowd against him. Notice, it's an untrue accusation they make about him. It's very similar to the one levelled at Jesus, actually, that he wanted to destroy the temple. Paul didn't do that. He did not bring Greeks into the temple. He was very careful not to do that at all. But it has, hasn't just been made up of thin air. Because Paul is friends with Trophimus, who's not Jewish. And he does think that any barrier that would stop that is gone through Jesus. So there's a seed of truth here. Paul and Trophimus are friends. He thinks those barriers have gone. It's somewhat like what my student friend experienced. He was called into those meetings and told, you hate LGBT people. And he was like, actually, I think hating people is wrong. So no, I don't. That's like part of being a Christian too. You want them to be unsafe. Well, actually, I really don't. Violence is against what I believe as well. But there is a seed of truth in the criticism being aimed at him because there is something very different going on about what we believe about sexuality and what people who aren't Christians believe about sexuality. And that was pounced on and blown up and used against him. That's exactly what's happened to Paul here. Um, we shouldn't, he shouldn't be open to the accusation because he's not gone wrong destroying or respecting people's traditions. And we should be clear about that. It's not ever a Christian's job to go around attacking mosques or burning synagogues. Those are never actions Christians can undertake without hypocrisy. But we are willing quietly and faithfully to upset the things society thinks are important. To be friends with our brothers and sisters, even if societies don't approve. And what that will be viewed at is like you crazy Christians believing that, we can blow that up and use it as a stick to beat you with, in Paul's case, quite literally, because they grab him and start beating him up. Well, don't worry, because some soldiers arrive while the whole cities are on, some Roman soldiers. Presumably, they will stop the people beating Paul up and put them in prison. No, in verse 33, the commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound in chains. He's not the one committing violence, but this is how it goes. And he had to be carried to the barracks because the crowd are so angry about this made up and imagined insult. 
Listen, we have lived, in the UK at least, under the influence of Christianity for 2,000 years. And because of that, we have a much deeper sense of equality and justice than Christians in the first century would have done. They would have just accepted that being treated unfairly was part of life. I met a friend of my parents once, and she had grown up as a pastor's daughter in Russia when it was a communist country, so she was my age. And um, she told the story of going to school on her first day, and the teacher stood up and said, that child is a Christian, and then left the room, and all the other children beat her up. And she went home to tell her dad, and her dad said, well, get used to it. They did it to Jesus, they did it to you. Now, it's good to be in a highly influenced Christian culture where that sort of thing is not allowed to happen, because we've been taught about human rights and freedom of expression. We should be grateful. But that means we can be slow to accept the truth being taught here. Being wrongly accused of doing wrong things, being disadvantaged because of that, that is just part of following Jesus. That's why we need the insights of Christians from other cultures. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It will happen to the church. Later on, Peter, who also is one of the earliest teachers in the church, talks about this. And I love the way he says it. He says, do not be surprised when people treat you this way, as if something strange were happening to you. We've totally forgotten that. We think any time we're treated unfairly because of Jesus, we're like, this is strange. This isn't right. This is unfair. We're so appalled, actually, at the idea of people were doing something wrong. We don't risk it. If we were Paul, we wouldn't have walked around with Trophimus just in case people thought we were attacking the temple. Recently, we had a lunch in church uh, for many of the people who are medics. It was lots of fun. I went, I was graciously allowed to attend, even though I wasn't a medic. And it was a very good place. I could just be like, oh, I've got this cough. What do you think? Uh, I didn't really do that. Anyway, one of the things that was discussed there is this sort of um, real uh, feeling that exists in medical circles that you're not allowed to talk about your faith at work at all because there's been some big legal cases about people who did that inappropriately and then got in trouble. And I think what's happened there is, especially medical people, because you tend to be nice and polite, you've thought, someone's got into trouble for doing something wrong, I'll just steer away from doing that altogether, all controversy, because you mustn't do that. And the discussion was very helpful to me, because we had quite a lot of doctors there saying, no, actually, there's perfectly appropriate ways to talk to your colleagues. There's even perfectly appropriate ways to ask your patients if they want this type of engagement, and even to explain why you take the decisions that you make. All appropriate, you never, ever pressure someone or take away from their care. Now, sometimes I think we don't believe that because we don't want to be like Paul. We think, oh, I don't want to rock the boat. So I'll steer right away from controversy at all. I don't want to see me walking around with Trophimus. It will look bad. But this unfair criticism is something you can't steer away from. You know, let's be clear again. Sometimes Christians are in troubles because they're behaving like idiots. We do need wisdom to discern that. Paul has been very careful in the passage we looked at last week. At his own cost, 
not to offend in any way that he can. He is brothers with Prophemus, though. That is the truth. And it's that that's used against him. Even though we would look back objectively and think what he's doing, welcoming Trophimus, and uh, is required by the gospel, it's also a social good, friendship across ethnic divides. You know, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Still going to get criticised for it. Accused of doing wrong, Peter says later in the Bible, you will be accused of doing wrong. Sooner or later, that is what will happen. Letting your light shine is not usually doing what's right and everybody saying, oh, well done you for doing what's right. I love you doing the right thing. I would like to become a Christian now. That's not usually how it works. Although if it does, great. Actually, usually the opportunity comes when you're doing what's right and you're criticised for it and then you get the moment to explain why you're doing it. Calmly, gently, respectfully, that's when the opportunity comes. That's what we see Paul do next. Tell your story for their benefit. If Paul wasn't about to get publicly killed here, the next bit would be quite comedic. Verse 20-37. He speaks to the soldier in Greek, which is the sort of like polite social language you use when you're trying to sort of, you know, it was the language they all spoke to each other between races. And uh, the soldier does a double take. He's like, oh, you can speak Greek. Aren't you the Egyptian who stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? I mean, Paul must have just been like, do I look like someone who would lead 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? What's going on here? Once I was sitting in Cafe Nero at Liverpool Street Station in London, and Anna, my wife, was getting coffee, and this woman came over to me and sat down at the table and just went, Roger, I take it. And I was like, uh, no, sorry, not Roger, sorry. And without embarrassment, she just stood up and walked away. <laughs> and then as we were leaving, we looked back to see who she was sitting with, and she was sitting with a huge six-foot-tall black man in a suit. I just thought, I'd love to know this story. <laughs> who is Roger, and how did she confuse me with him? I'm not Roger, but I'd like to know more about him. It's a little bit like that with this Egyptian terrorist, isn't it? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a riot and led 4,000 assassins into a desert? No, but I mean, it would have been great if his story was in the book. Anyway, it isn't. Paul says, no, I am a Jew, brackets, that means I am allowed to be here. And I'm from Tarsus, which is a very respected centre of learning. So he's not scared to say, you shouldn't be treating me like this. And then he uses his rights and who he is, to get a hearing for Jesus. Worth noting, we'll see it more next week, the call here, therefore, is not to be a perpetual victim if you don't have to be. The call is not to, like, choose as a Christian to make things as bad as they can possibly be all the time. You're allowed to say, this is not right, actually, what's happening to me. But that's with the aim of speaking about Jesus not getting out of trouble. Uh, when we were at our church weekend, Andy, the speaker, talked about a church like ours that meets in a school, but it was a secular school. And the, church, uh, the school got wind of some of the things the church was teaching, and we thought, that's not very good for our PR. 
And so they just said to the school, sorry that you're, you're out, you can't meet here. We don't have Christian groups here anymore, which they foolishly put in an email. That's actually illegal in the UK. You can't discriminate against people or groups because of their religious beliefs. So it was really fine for the church not to like say, oh, poor us, we're being persecuted, we'll meet on the street or whatever, and actually write back and say, that's illegal, by the way. That's what you get Paul doing here. Saying, I have every right to speak. I'm not an Egyptian terrorist leading assassins into the desert. But he's only opening up that space not to defend himself, but so he can tell them a story. And when he speaks, he tells a story, and it's a story that we already know as readers of Acts, because it's there in Acts chapter 9. It's the story that you know if you were here when we did that a few months ago. Paul persecuted the church, he met Jesus in a great light, he was baptised by Ananias, and he was sent by God to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, which is non-Jewish people. Now, as we're going to see next week, this does not calm the people at all, this story, quite the opposite. But we know it, so why is Luke, the writer of Acts, recording for us again here? Look how Paul tells his story here. First of all, we discover the last verse of uh, chapter 22. He tells the story in Aramaic or possibly Hebrew. So he talks to them in their language. And he makes many references to their shared culture and history his connections with them. He starts off by saying, I'm a Jew, the same ethnic group as you. I was born in Tarsus, a university city you uh, respect. I studied under Gamaliel, who's very well respected rabbi. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted people in the way you're persecuting me. I actually know the high priest, you know, who was probably there. Saying, oh, do you know him? I actually know him from then, this important man in your society. And just to be clear, Ananias, who baptised me, he was someone well respected by Jewish people like you. The God of our fathers I prayed to in the temple. And actually, when he tells the story here, this is a, a detail we don't get in Acts 9, he says God told him he'd be persecuted. And he was like, I love this, because this is like, he's telling his prayer to God, but it's there benefit so he's like God said to me leave Jerusalem they'll persecute you and Paul was like in front of everyone I said to him Lord surely they won't persecute me they will realize I am one of them surely they will see that it's one of those prayers that's actually for everyone else's benefit <coughs> and as we know he's just shaved his head and paid money to show he respects their traditions I love that that even basically while a gun is being held to his head, he thinks, how can I tell people about Jesus? Not in a sort of self-righteous, pious, I'll get my message out their way, but building as many bridges to them as he possibly can, even at this moment that they're expressing their hatred towards him. I mean, I think once it would have been clear that they couldn't treat me this way, I'd have been like, ha, everyone, made a mistake, didn't you? Now let me go on my way and be peaceful. But he doesn't do that. Jesus, Paul, the church, when under pressure, we do our best to win people to forgiveness, even at the very moment they are holding the gun 
to our head. It was actually Jesus, wasn't it, who we love and worship, who while people were murdering him, was praying for God to forgive them. And here is just Paul taking that same approach. Says, your hatred of me, your focus on me, is giving me an opportunity to explain to you in the best way I can that you will understand, highlighting our sameness so that you'll hear and listen. I met someone once whose family is from Central Europe, whose family and community had been persecuted once by another ethnic group. But later in life, he was involved in ministry. He realised if people in that ethnic group are going to hear about Jesus, someone needs to learn their language. It was a very small ethnic group niche. So he said, someone needs to learn their language. So he did. Even though his experience in life had been victimised and marginalised by that group. He said, I'll use my life to build bridges so that they can receive forgiveness. That's a God thing. It's a Jesus thing. And Paul is teaching us it's a church thing. I was reading a book a little while ago about the country of Cambodia. In the 1970s, a terrorist group took hold of the government and killed everybody who didn't agree with them, including Christians. And the book told the story of a Christian family knowing these people were coming, the Khmer Rouge, waiting for them to come. And eventually they arrived. And at the last minute, their 12... 12-year-old son ran off into the jungle. And uh, as the father, the father said, just give me a moment to the people who are about to kill them, and went to the edge of the jungle. Called out to the jungle saying, son, listen, you're going to end up, if they catch you, they're going to torture you. If they don't catch you, you're going to starve. We could go and be with Jesus today together, so let's do that. And they walked back, the son appeared, and they walked back. And he said, in front of the people, in our desk, we're going to teach these people that Christians aren't scared of death. It's just similar to what Paul's doing here, isn't it? At the moment they hate you, irrationally, that's the moment you get to build bridges. When you're feeling persecuted... The easiest thing to do is hide and become self-righteous. So you don't want to engage with people because they hate you, that's natural. And you begin to, amongst your community, start to say, and at least we're all right and God will judge them. They go to hell for the way they're treating us. I occasionally observe that with people who've come to this country from somewhere that they have been persecuted for being a Christian it's easy to develop hatred for those people. I understand that they persecuted you. But actually, you probably need to think, I'm uniquely gifted to take the gospel to those people, even though they hate me for being a Christian. I grew up in a very conservative Christian culture, and it was all like this. We're nothing like those bad people in the world. We're separate and different I know we're missing out on all the fun they're having, but they will go to hell for it. That's not what Christians are called to do. 
Even at the moment they are hating you the most, you are called to find common ground like Paul does, even with people who hate you so much that they want to kill you, and tell your story, explaining as much as possible how you are like them, not unlike them. And in our day and age, that is a skill we will need to learn. Being a Christian now in the UK is not just strange, but often viewed as dangerous, problematic. And especially if you're British, and I know not everyone else is here, but here's a little insight to British culture for you. High value put on politeness, not rocking the boat. And so we think, oh, this person's getting angry and annoyed with me. I better just back off. Maybe if you're from another culture, you have the opposite problem. You become angry and defensive with people believing bad things about you because you're a Christian. But we need to get into Paul's mindset here, which is like you expect to be unfairly maligned for doing what is right, not for doing what is wrong. And that's what opens the opportunity to talk respectfully about Jesus. This is the third and last thing we see. Fair criticism. They listen till he gets to the bit um, in verse 21 where God tells him to go far away to the Gentiles. And then we didn't have this read. Joshua will be talking about it next week. But it says in verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So he gets to the bit of his story where he's told to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And he, that's when they all go totally mad at him again. Now, there are reasons, actually very understandable reasons, why this would make them angry. Remember, we are talking here, Jewish people, an extremely persecuted minority group. They had no power, and what they had was this justified sense that they were God's people. And here's one of their own coming along and saying, actually, God's offer is for all the people, including the people who are crushing you and hating you. It's not irrational that they freak out at that. It's totally understandable. But Paul is not going to back down on that. He has not brought Greeks into the temple. He has done everything he can to respect their traditions. But he is not going to back down on the true, the true goodness that God is offering anyone in the world to come to him through Jesus. So at this point, it's a fair criticism. He is just saying something they disagree with. That will get him into trouble. He will have to wear that. That's where the story stops. Now, I've said this two times already and I want to say it again. I cannot underline more that Christians doing things they know will annoy people in order to say they are being persecuted. That is not on. And there is a sort of strand of Christianity that likes doing that have offensive signs and go to sensitive places and say horrible things to people and then say, oh, they're persecuting us. Paul is the total opposite of that. He bends over backwards at his own cost not to be offensive. But when you receive unfair criticism for doing good and you say, let me explain, that's not what I'm doing, you will uncover that people actually really do disagree with the call of the gospel and it makes them angry anyway. I really hate this bit of this passage because my worldview is that I love the idea of making Christianity respectable, winsome, 
reasoning with people to help them see clearly. I earnestly believe Christianity makes sense of the world that we live in, and so I want to expose people to that. I get that. But in the end, even when you explain clearly and winsomely and respectfully, quite a lot of people just hate what the gospel says. Once I was speaking at a university event, and I think, I think the lady was a lecturer, actually came and speak to me at the end, and she was really furious, you know, when someone is sort of like shaking because they're angry. And she said, I'm very offended because I think you have left us all with the impression that we all need forgiveness. And I said, okay, well, um, I did leave with that impression. I tried to reason with her. I said, I think what most of us find is that we do things wrong in life, and so we all need some form of forgiveness. And she had this very strong worldview of, like, you shouldn't have to apologise for who you are. You shouldn't have apologised for things you've done. She was like, I'm furious that you've had a room of 100 people here and you've left them with that thought in their head, sent them out into the world, saying to them, they're the type of people who need to ask for forgiveness. There was nothing I could do to calm her. That is our message. There was no way of saying that that was not going to clash with what she believed. And I cannot back down on that. It was a fair criticism she was making. We want to be like Jesus here at Christ Church. It's in our name, Christ Church. We want Christ to be formed in us. I'm sure most of us who are Christians would agree with that. But here's the truth. We are most like Jesus when we continue to love our enemies by sharing the truth that will save them, even as they hate us. That is Jesus' character. Praying, Father, forgive them as they are killing him. So when we are walking that path, that is when we are most like him. Please let me be clear, you do not have to be that guy irritating everyone by being a witness, judging other people's lives, only being willing to have a conversation if you can get the gospel in, standoffish about everybody's godless behaviour. You must not be that guy. We don't try and offend. But you must be the guy who loves your enemies. You must be the guy or girl who prays for those who persecute you. We must be the people who do everything in our power to graciously help people see. We must be the people who, when we are hated and under pressure, accept they will accuse you of doing wrong. We must be the guy who speaks up for their benefit in that moment. And we must be the guy who doesn't back down when people hate the gospel. Jesus was that guy. And we want to be like Jesus. That's all we want, actually. In a moment, we are going to remember Jesus' death for us by eating bread and drinking wine. There's lots of ways we can remember Jesus. Remember what he's done for us. Remember what the relationship is. He brings us to God. Use it to confess our sin. Perhaps today, though, as we take the bread and wine and remember Jesus' death, we should be thinking about becoming like him in his death so that others can hear and live.